Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 306 of the podcast. It's April 18th, 2018. My guest today is Mark D. Valenti, the manager of training, education, and workflow integration for a program called ECCM, Enhanced Community Care Management at Highmark Health. So in this episode, we will talk about the use of motivational interviewing methods and mindsets in the ECCM program and how, quote, every day closer to better, unquote, is part of their mantra. So we'll discuss the motivational interviewing approach and how MI is different than traditional healthcare models or change management models that often focus on telling people to change or telling them why they should change. There are many lessons um, from this uh, approach and this this, uh, case example here that I think would be helpful for people in any workplace or personal change context. So if you would like to learn more about ECCM, you can contact uh, the program uh, via email eccm at highmarkhealth.org. And if you'd like links to more information about motivational interviewing, a link to Mark Valenti's LinkedIn page, you can find all of that by going to leanblog.org slash 306. Mark, hi. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mark. Good morning to you. And thanks for having me on the uh, discussion. Sure. So if you can start off, you know, maybe just introduce yourself and, uh, you know, tell the audience about uh, the types of work that you do in healthcare improvement. Uh, yes, uh, my name is uh, Mark Valenti. I'm the uh, manager of education, training, and workflow integration at Highmark Health, which is an integrated delivery uh, and finance system. And it is uh, basically a system that incorporates both the operational side of healthcare in the outpatient inpatient world with the insurance side, which is a very unique. Uh, perspective, and it's not really something that happens a lot in this country where we try to align the insurance and the operations. My background's in behavioral health. I got my start at Western Psychiatric Institute and Clinic here in Pittsburgh and working on a program called the Alcoholism and Family Interaction Initiative. And over the time, I've spent a lot of uh, years in education and training, in primary care, and also in behavioral health. And I first got turned on to the idea about continuous quality improvement and lean uh, about 10 years ago, I would say, when we were working with one of our partners in the area who first introduced us to this concept. What resonated with you? I mean, was lean something different than CQI? Did you see it as sort of an evolution of continuous quality improvement? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, at the time, I was actually the director of a family medicine residency program. And, you know... As maybe some of the listeners know, it was really uh, a lot of chaos there in that environment. We had 27 residents, 12 attending faculty, a lot of patients and people moving through our office, and a huge wait time in our in uh, in the patients, but also just in in getting things done with care coordination and just communication. And the idea about lean, uh, obviously. I probably suffered from the same sort of ideas about what it meant when I first heard it. Did it mean we were sort of cutting down the workforce? Did it mean we were kind of removing some of the things we needed and trying to save costs? Um, I think, you know, that idea kind of stuck with me a little bit at first. But when I sort of got turned on to the idea about continuous quality improvement, uh, it really stuck. And it's something I kind of carried forward each day. Uh, a friend of mine a few years ago used the term everyday closer to better 
meaning that we're, you know, even if we make one improvement today, we're still continuously uh, moving down that path. And it's become a mantra of the initiative that I work on currently at Highmark Health. Great. And we'll, we'll be able to um, dig into that and talk about um, how you're approaching that and um, trying to help guide behavioral change in, in the context of that. But, you know, what, what you say there, of, uh, you know, I've heard different flavors of that expression every day a little better. I mean, you know, to me, that's the, the notion of, of Kaizen and continuous improvement um, as, as an ideal of something that everybody can participate in. Um, but, you know, part, part of what I hear you saying is that in, in a way, continuous quality improvement is a, a more welcoming label for uh, some of these concepts more so than, than the word lean might be. That, that's absolutely right. So not only uh, as a healthcare employee back then uh, was it more palatable to me, on my current initiative, when there's about 25 frontline nurses who are working with the top 5% of the most complex patients, uh, the idea of a continuous quality improvement and that every day closer to better fits a lot more appropriately into their work as opposed to lean and sort of some of those traditional terms. So you're absolutely right. It's much more uh, relevant to the frontline staff. Yeah. And, you know, when we're um, trying to introduce people to, to lean or Q, Q, CQI concepts or, you know, uh, in, a, in a way maybe, you know, invite them to learn or invite them to participate, you know, in my, in my experience, it's not just about teaching technical methods, but it's it's about engaging people and, and maybe that's where we come to the topic of, of motivational interviewing as a way of you know, uh, engaging people in a conversation about change. Um, could you, you, know, you have uh, a lot of experience here. How would you define and introduce the idea of uh, motivational interviewing uh, in general before we talk maybe about applications and connections to lean and the workplace? Sure. Uh, motivational interviewing is quite simply helping people change. So whether it's the frontline nurse who has a traditional model that she's sort of incorporated her entire life, it's helping her change her behavior and sort of a value-based care approach to, to health care. It's helping the, uh, it's that uh, staff member who's on the front line who's struggling with incorporating a new policy. How do we help them change their behavior? It's the patient, the patient who's suffering through diabetes, who's really not remembering to take their medication or maybe doesn't feel that they want to check their blood sugars, and it's really helping them change their behavior. And since motivational interviewing is helping people change, a lot of people find it applicable with their family members and people around them. And it's really stopping and asking yourself when you're communicating with another person, what do I really want from this person? What do I want them to do? Is there some element of behavior change that I'm looking for? And if there is, then motivational interviewing uh, is definitely something that seems to work and has been proven to work. It's based on the idea that, you know, many people every day are constantly making decisions if they want to sustain their current behavior, whatever that is. Perhaps it's, you know, avoiding going to the gym versus if they truly want to change their behavior, which is start incorporating activity into their, into their schedule. And the state of ambivalence, motivational interviewing is really about helping another person kind of talk through that ambivalence and working toward the change. Yeah, and, you know, in my, you know, kind of early introductory study to motivational interviewing, this idea of ambivalence, I, I think, is really interesting that getting being stuck between 
change talk and sustain talk. And, you know, I, you know, I think we, we can all maybe relate to this in a personal life. Uh, people saying things like I've, I've said these things. I, I need to eat more healthy. I should eat less, but then that doesn't always translate into, um, making the right choices. I might rationalize like, well, I was in a rush or I was on the go and, and there, there's, there's some, form of ambivalence. So in, in the context of motivational interviewing, can you explain a little bit more about going about helping someone change, which, which is, you know, it, you know, it seems very intentionally a different set of language than making someone change or telling people what to do in the context of, of counseling or, or leadership in the workplace. Could, could you elaborate on, on some of that perhaps? Yes, absolutely. It, you're right in saying that it's definitely not the traditional model of communication in the workplace, not only in healthcare, but in general. Sort of that traditional model is jumping to like what we call the planning phase, where we say, okay, here's a new policy, now go implement it. Or for a patient who's being discharged from the hospital, here's your discharge instructions, now go and get your prescriptions filled. Or a patient who's leaving the primary care office, we give an after-visit summary and says, okay, we want you to go and, you know, change your diet. So that traditional model is the planning phase of motivational interviewing. And motivational interviewing says that we want to get up to that point, but instead of just dumping information on people, we want to get them to a point where they're saying, you know what, I'm actually really interested in what I can do differently in changing my diet. And at that point is when we kind of go to that planning phase and work with them to develop a plan that works for them. And ultimately, the goal is to activate the patient, activate the other person. So they're making these decisions as part of their intrinsic motivation. So instead of having the doctor say, hey, do this, you know, make sure that you cut the salt and the patient feels shamed or feels like they have to do it to please the doctor, motivational interviewing is really about activating that patient in making that decision when they're in the grocery store and nobody's around, they're by themselves, and they say, you know what, I'm not going to buy this can of soup that has so much sodium in it. They're making a better decision because they feel like it is part of their own behavior and they're intrinsically motivated. We uh, we are a big fan of uh, Daniel Pink's book, Drive, which I know that mm-hmm. you've uh, talked to him before, and right. we really focus on how do we stay away from the traditional 2.0 model of check the box, carrot and stick, versus really pulling out that intrinsic motivation, not only in patients, but in the healthcare providers who are struggling day to day to do what they do best. Yeah, maybe, you know, one other clinical question, and then, you know, we can maybe steer back to, to workplace scenarios that people might be addressing. But you mentioned earlier your background in behavioral health and, and, and you know, it's, uh, the, you know, the initial uh, textbook on motivational interviewing talks about situations like, you know, addiction, treatment. Mm-hmm. There are, how, you know, how do you address situations of trying to activate somebody? Um, there's, there's a difference, it seems, between somebody who has chosen to go to counseling versus, let's say, somebody who has been told to by the legal system or a loved one. Um, if, if, mm-hmm. if somebody's starting with a low level of commitment, what are some of the uh, processes in motivational interviewing that can help with that? Yeah, I think uh, you hit the nail on the head when you talk about sort of the history of motivational interviewing in the addiction world. Uh, you know, I have the privilege on the side to work with some of our law enforcement in Pennsylvania, particularly with parole officers as they're working with, and they're called quote-unquote offenders. So 
I feel that, you know, if I can help those parole officers change behavior of those offenders, then healthcare is relatively easier. But the reason I mention that particularly is because, as you know, in 3.0 of Drive, uh, there's really a focus on autonomy and feeling that, you know, as an individual, we have a choice in any situation. Even if there's some court-mandated addiction program, there's ultimately a choice for the person to go or not go. Now, obviously, there's consequences for not going, but motivational interviewing relies on the fact that the person who is guiding the behavior change is constantly letting the other person know, the person who's going to going through the behavior change, the person who's guiding constantly lets them know that they have a choice. It's ultimately up to them what they decide to do in their life. And we find that sometimes, actually a lot of times, that for the person who's suffering through addiction or their confidence is very low, just being made aware that they have a choice in the matter pulls back to the autonomy, which is 3.0 of drive, mm -hmm. and it starts down a pathway. And, and again, I think the biggest challenge in that is having the person who's the guider, the person who's influencing the behavior, realize that they're not personally responsible for the choice that's made by the other person. I think that's probably the, one of the biggest hurdles and challenges we have is, you know, in healthcare, we all constantly feel that we're responsible for people's choices. And in fact, we're actually told a lot of times you're responsible for whether or not the person goes to the hospital or not. So I think one of the biggest learnings and aha moments is whenever these folks who are working on guiding behavior change realize, you know what, I'm not personally responsible and the best I can do is help give them the tools and guide them, but ultimately it's respecting the other person's autonomy. Yeah, that's one thing that really, um, I think, you know, made me think when, in reading, learning about MI, the idea of respecting the choices made by the person you're helping, those, those choices might not be the choices you would make. They might not be the choices you would hope they would make. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, I try to think in terms of, you know, workplace scenarios where people might be stuck. Uh, a manager is trying to embrace some lean management principles. You know, we might have a situation where they were, you know, they were told to go to lean training. They were told you need to uh, follow some of these practices. And, you know, I see situations where there's change talk and sustained talk. A manager, let's say, who's being encouraged to go out into the workplace, to the Gemba, if you will, to uh, participate in team huddles. They, they might say things like, well, I know I need to do that. I should do that. It would help if I do that. But then you hear the sustained talk around, but I'm too busy. I've got these other meetings. I'm under this pressure. Um, you know, it, it's, it's hard to kind of step back and say if a manager is choosing to not go to the huddles, that that's a choice. And respecting that choice can, at least to me, that that's something that can be a challenge. You're absolutely right about that. You know, we talked about the fourth stage of motivational interviewing, the planning. The first stage is engaging. It's really getting to know somebody, you know, as you know, and what makes them tick? What are their fears? What are their values? And you bring up a great example of, of somebody, a manager who's sort of expressing that ambivalence, who says, you know, I know I need to do this, but I got a lot of stuff to do. And it really takes a, a lot of practice for to kind of step back and not jump in there with that writing reflex, which you know, it's really that reflex to say, you know what, manager, you're you're wrong because this will actually help you in the long run or, you know, and, and it's that writing reflex that turns people off. So a lot of the practice is around getting 
changing your sort of own pathways in your brain. So you're trying to not just jump in there with the writing reflex and, and really expressing empathy toward the other person. So, you know, a response, a traditional response would be, okay, the huddles will save you time, but a more MI related response could be, you've been thinking about this, for instance, and really mm-hmm. kind of having the person realize they're ambivalent, you know, or doing that sort of double-sided reflection, which is, you know, it seems like you have a lot that's going on, but you still see a value in the huddles and making a statement so the other person kind of has it out there on the table and explores that for themselves. But resisting that writing reflex, the R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G reflex, is definitely um, a challenge for a lot of people because we all have triggers and we all got work to do. Yeah, I mean, one, one thing I think is, is interesting about motivational interviewing is, in my mind, the connection to the Toyota principle, the lean idea of respect for people or respect for humanity. And, you know, there, there's elements where we might say, look, you know, people are imperfect. We get tired. Uh, we forget things. So that's why we use error proofing as a countermeasure to instead of just saying to people, hey, be perfect, don't slip up. Um, there's that, you know, you talk about the writing reflex, you know, from what I've read, there, there's some human nature there. there there's human nature to uh, it's, that it's very natural to be in a state of ambivalence or to be described as resisting change as as a natural part of the change process instead of being something that's wrong with the person. And, and, and those, those, I mean, you know, to me, I think those are very, uh, I think there's a high degree of overlap between what people would call the spirit of MI and uh, a spirit of lean. What, what, what are your thoughts? You know, you're entirely right about that. You know, we, uh, in our initiative, we like to use the image of a well, uh, you know, it, and I'll talk a little about, a bit about that. Traditional healthcare says that other people are this glass half full of water, that they're at a deficit. And it's really been up to traditional healthcare management and providers to, to fill up other people, their glass half full of water. Um, but it's really traditional healthcare is us acting on others and trying to fix them. Whereas motivational interviewing says that people are more of a well and the water's already inside. Some people's water is up near the top and they said, you know what, I need some help, help me out. And you help them out. Other people, the water's really low, and we got to keep dunking that bucket down until we pull up that motivation to the surface. The idea, that philosophy about respect for other people, it says that you believe that everybody that you interact with has water inside of them. You believe that everybody has some strength. And I think that, uh, you know, that kind of growing your own and, and really trying to focus, you know, when it comes to working with employees, saying, you know what, there's something in this person some water in the well they can pull up to the surface and try to help them meet their goals, but also meet the goals of their company as well. And and I think um, you're right about human behavior, uh, which is why a lot of our training and development doesn't just focus on motivational interviewing. We focus on emotional intelligence, and we spend time really exploring about nonverbal behavior and how do people accept ambiguity, and we're just ongoing having people realize things about themselves. What are their triggers? Uh, before we can really start working on the motivational interviewing part of this. So we spent a lot of time trying to help people tie into who they are as a person and help them feel more confident as they're working on motivational interviewing with others. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit on, um, you know, kind of, and maybe use an example from your work uh, with the uh, ECCM initiative or other work you've been involved in, in 
I, I find really interesting this idea of drawing out, evoking people's motivation. You know, I, I think there's a lot of situations where, where people are well-intended. Maybe it's a form of the writing reflex of, of uh, telling people why they should change. Well, you know, you, your motivation as a manager, this will save you time, and that might not be in alignment with, uh, with, with that individual's motivation. Um, can, can you sort of, you know, can you talk through that process of, of trying to discover that motivation? Are, are you looking to d- discover alignment? Do you sometimes have to try to steer people? Um, where, where do you find that balance? Yeah, I think uh, I, can, I can give it a specific example and maybe kind of mm-hmm. talk through this a little bit. And just you know, briefly, I want to mention about our ECCM initiative, which is our Enhanced Community Care Management Initiative here at Highmark Health, which is really focused on the top 5% of our total population. Uh, when I say top 5%, I'm sure many people are aware, folks that are constantly struggling with managing their condition, they are constantly in the hospital, they are really, really struggling with some of the basic day-to-day uh, efforts of managing their condition. And, you know, we, are, we started our initiative uh, back in September of 2016, and we incorporate, as I said, motivational interviewing, health literacy. We're also unique because we also use, it's called the Flinders model of chronic condition self-management, which comes from Australia. We actually have a, a, a great partnership with them, but that focuses on motivational interviewing as being sort of the core. So I'm mentioning all this um, because our nurses, our, our ECCM nurses are embedded in the primary care offices. And these primary care offices are extremely busy, as I don't have to tell the listeners. They're very busy. People are struggling with, you know, multiple initiatives, multiple deadlines, multiple patients coming through. I don't miss that world at all, so it's kind of nice to see it from the outside. Uh, it's, you know, the day-to-day, uh, day-to-day chaos, if you will. But mm-hmm. as an example, um, one of our nurses, and I kind of I tell the story a lot because I think it's very telling, she was working in one of the primary care offices, and a physician said you know, this patient, Jane, doesn't really care about her health. She doesn't want to manage her diabetes. So our nurse ended up talking to the patient, Jane, and it turns out that the patient wasn't checking her blood sugars because she said she couldn't afford $100 a month for test drugs. Uh, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and I'm sure it's a common problem. So, so basically, right. our nurse walked through it, and she found out that she could connect Jane to three-month supply for $40. And the patient, Jane, started checking her blood sugar. She kept going through and doing it twice a day and letting our nurse know. At a point in the conversation, our nurse said to the patient, are you going to tell your doctor about this? And the patient said, I'm not going to tell my doctor about it because she doesn't seem to care anyway. Mm. So it was really, you know, and again, it doesn't mean that the doctor didn't care. The doctor was probably frustrated with a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And and the idea behind this is, one, we have a nurse who's guiding the behavior change, is now working with a patient who's managing their condition, but now the next step in the process is not for the nurse to go into the doctor and say, hey, did you know your patient is saying this about you, but also have a guided conversation with the doctor and try to understand what got the doctor involved in healthcare in the first place. What is this doctor's motivation? What is their drive in doing day-to-day? And it turns out in a lot of these conversations with physicians, they want to help these patients who have complex conditions. The importance for doing so is high, but they don't have the confidence or time to walk through it or even comfortable having the conversations. 
So what we're finding, uh, and RVP says this a lot, is that we sort of have a, a halo effect in a lot of these practices, um, which we're looking they're looking to our nurses as, as value added, but they're also learning some approaches of motivational interviewing as well. Um, there's oftentimes that some of these practices where I do a, a brief on-site training development on motivational interviewing for the nurses, our nurses, but the practice team is there as well because they want to learn more about this. Yeah. And again, and none of it's forced. There's a pull from them. You know, it's not like I'm going in and saying, hey, you got to learn this. It's them saying, you know what, we want to learn more about this. Yeah, and I mean, what, what you what you described there, um, one thing that stands out to me is what, what sounds like some assumptions being made on the provider's part, uh, unfortunately, assuming that the patient doesn't care about their health, the patient assuming the doctor seems not to care about them. And, you know, I think sometimes, you know, in workplace scenarios, I've seen uh, somebody expresses some you know, level of, of resistance, even as, as uh, you know, I think as benign as asking questions, you know, and, and I think a lot of times, I, unfortunately, I see leaders kind of jump to an assumption that, um, oh, that manager's never going to get on board. They're being difficult. They don't care about whatever. And, and I mean, one, one thing that's appealing to, to me about motivational interviewing is thinking of change as a conversation, that if we hit some sort of barrier or fact the patient isn't checking their blood sugar, it, that, that, that resistance, it seems, is not a point of giving up or not an excuse to give up on people, but the starting point for that conversation is, is your story um, really seems to suggest finding out what the issues are. And it sounds like for that patient, there was motivation. There was just a legitimate barrier uh, about affordability that was discovered. That's right. And it was something that was going on for years and just a simple conversation that and using that, like you said, that that initial, okay, this person's struggling with this as, as an impetus for conversation quickly came up with a solution that was actually fairly, fairly easy. And, you know, we hear a lot from our patients who say, you know what, no one's ever actually talked to me about this before. Nobody's actually asked me what my thoughts are about my diet. Nobody actually stops and asks me what my thoughts are about what I can do differently. So if I had to come up with one consistent theme that we hear from our patients, it's that. They're saying, wow, nobody's ever actually asked me my thoughts on what I'm going to do for my own health. And and I think, you know, to your point, when we go out there to these practices, when we're first introducing the ECCM program, we want to sort of live the same sort of thing that we're kind of helping others to do as well. So we don't go in there with a PowerPoint presentation and say, here's our ECCM program. We have 1,500 patients in there. We're, we're seeing these positive results. We go in there and have a conversation with the care team and say, talk to me about your patients. Talk to me about your practice. Tell me what made you do this in the first place. And then we get into a conversation about, so how are things going with your most complex patients? And when they talk about their most complex patients, inevitably these office staff just their you know their eyes glaze over and they say oh you know we can't get them to do the things they need to do and instead of jumping in and saying well here's what you need to do we want to express empathy and just you know make those empathic statements it seems like this is really hard for you and we get to a point in the conversation where they say i could really use some help and at that point we're in the planning phase and they're much more open to partnering with this outside nurse who's coming into the practice to partner with them it's always it's always a really good feeling to kind of see uh, 
you know, these practices welcome our ECCM nurses as we work together on the care coordination. Well, what you say there really strikes me, that phrase I've, I've heard from so many uh, healthcare professionals at all levels of, of, of organizations. Nobody's ever asked me. And it, yeah. it always makes me sad when, you know, it's a good thing that, you know, if we're trying to start creating uh, a process around continuous improvement, a culture of continuous improvement, a lot of times the frontline staff know what to do. They just haven't been asked or, you know, uh, management well-intended. Maybe it's a form of the writing reflex is throwing solutions at them. And I, you know, I think one thing that's you know, in, in interesting about reading about MI, it seems like lack of change usually isn't born out of not knowing what to do. I, you know, like I heard you say, you know, we know, we know what we need to do, but, you know, it, seemed like it comes down mm-hmm. to, a lack of commitment, a lack of confidence. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, reading about, you know, these clinical encounters of um, asking the patient that they can usually, when it's time, they can come up with a pretty good plan. But I think going through that conversation of, of um, helping strengthen commitment, strengthen confidence um, is something really, really helpful and noteworthy within MI. That's, that's entirely right. I mean, it really comes down uh, to, and this obviously is, is part of motivational interviewing, that there's two components that have to be there for behavior change, the, an importance that's put on it, but also a confidence. And we find that in 90 plus percent of the time, the importance is already there. Like you said, people, people know what they need to do, what they want to do. Their confidence is lacking. So you have a, you know, a, a nurse who works in an office who says, I know that quality improvement is important. I know that these numbers and the insurers and all the stuff that we're expected to do, I know it's important. I just don't have the time to do it. So I think it's really, instead of trying to sell people on why it's important, stop and listen. And it's already already there, to your point. And we're, we're inefficient if we're trying to spend time trying to bombard people with information or motivate them if they already know it. And not only that, we sort of break down that collaborative conversation. But if we can spend more time listening and then helping them increase their confidence, our conversations will be much more value added in general. Yeah, and I, and I wonder how many of these, you know, these uh, reasons or, or you know, how much of the sustained talk. If somebody says, uh, "I don't have time," is I wonder how often that's uh, a safer thing to say than. Um, some, you know, something that expresses a lack of confidence. If, if, if somebody says, somebody might be unwilling to say, I don't know if I can do this because that makes them vulnerable. And a lot of workplaces don't really appreciate that. Right. That's right. You're, you're, you're entirely right. And that's why the engaging part of motivational interviewing is extremely important. It's really having people feel comfortable and okay with the relationship that they are okay with sharing their vulnerabilities and really um, exploring that and, and being in a safe space so they can explore that. You know, a lot of our training uh, with motivational interviewing is really uh, giving the learners a chance to be vulnerable themselves and explore that and think about how they like to be guided toward behavior changed. And I think um, that was always, it's always been a big takeaway where there where people stop and think, you know what, I'm doing this thing to somebody else, the thing that I don't like when people do it to me. And, you know, we're really promoting internal champions and culture change. We're, we're really activating people, just like we try to activate the patients. We're activating these people and the practices in our healthcare system so they can make these changes and help others make those changes as well. But 
I know it seems it's really like a basic thing, but, you know, it's really listening and paying attention to other people and what they may need at the moment and what would make them feel comfortable exploring their own ambivalence. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm I'm curious, can you talk a little bit more about the the training process that you go through if you're trying to teach people about MI? How does that start? How long does that take? I mean, I'm, I'm just curious. Um, is, is it is it days of training? Is it a little bit of training with coaching over time? How do, how do you approach that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, whenever our nurses join our team, they actually have over the span of months about 121 hours of training, and that's the core training, which is a combination of the classroom setting, as I mentioned. Uh, it's also, and again, in addition to motivational interviewing, it's health literacy, it's it's emotional intelligence, in addition to best practices for the service lines like oncology and diabetes and those sort of things. Um, But obviously not all learning happens in the classroom. So we actually have on-site coaching and feedback where I have a chance to actually observe the nurses as they're spending time with their colleagues, if if they want to to sort of share information to guide behavior change, or more importantly, with the patients as well. So I've been in rooms whenever they talk to patients and families or whenever they're on the phone with them. And uh, we actually have a unique tool that is based on the Motivational Interviewing Treatment Integrity Scale, version 4. Uh, it actually, that scale itself is used for audio tapes. Um, we've adapted it a bit to sort of use for real-time coaching. And I had talked to, um, to some of the folks who had created the, the, the mighty, the Motivational Interviewing Treatment Integrity Scale, the original one. And um, sort of got their their buy-in and being able to use our revised uh, Mighty tool to provide real-time coaching and feedback. And it's really in four simple areas, which is how well does the provider express empathy toward the patient? How well do they sort of respect that, that partnership and promote that partnership? How well do they soften, sustain talk? And how well do they cultivate change talk? And it really is, it's on a Likert scale, so it really is an opportunity to sort of give some feedback and real-time coaching. So, um, and we, and our nurses feel that that is actually something that helps them, obviously real-time application more so than the classroom, as you might imagine. Well, it's, it's great that you are, I, I think it's great that you're, you're bringing that methodology to people as, as sort of, you know, broader, part of a broader um, methodology that, you know, I hear you talking about sort of, you know, practicing what you preach of, of using, um, these methods that you're you're hoping others will follow. Um, it's it's really 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 fascinating. Um, you know, as we wrap up here, do do you have any advice or thoughts? What do you recommend? You know, if people are sort of intrigued, hearing what you're saying about motivational interviewing, uh, what what do you recommend as as resources and ways to learn? Well, I think. Um a couple things. I think one, I think it was, I was remember a few years ago when I first saw you put an article out there about applying motivational interviewing to sort of that lean philosophy and continuous quality improvement. So I think you have done a great job of sort of breaking that down and applying it to the workplace. So I would encourage people, obviously, and this, and believe it or not, whoever's listening, this isn't something he had told me to say. I think it was really, I think it's really, I think it's really a helpful tool because it really kind of breaks it down um, into bite-sized pieces and applicability, applicability to the work. Uh, obviously, the motivational interviewing book, Helping People Change, uh, you know, is, is uh, obviously all these concepts are in there. And I obviously want to say make sure that you get the third edition 
because mm-hmm. they really broke down the uh, you know the different the four levels the engaging, focusing, evoking, planning, and splitting it up um, to uh, how do you how do you address discord and, and conversations. So I mean, and there's there's a lot of information out there. There's a few groups on LinkedIn as well, which people can can look for. But I think I think the one thing I'll say uh, in an organization, this is the first time at Highmark Health that I've actually been part of an organization where the leadership puts a huge value in this approach. And you know, I give the credit to my, to, to my VP, um, Joe Clark, J O Clark. She's been phenomenal in really supporting this. And instead of saying why are the nurses spending so much time training. She says, make sure that they are trained and able to do their job. And, and I'm pleased to say, if, I don't, if you don't mind me saying so, that we've been, we have over 1,500 patients enrolled. We've actually seen a decrease in the costs, which I know is from the insurance side, which is, you know, goes beyond the patient stories. Um, we've actually seen a, a decrease in our costs, which is about um, 18%, 18% lower total medical costs per members per month with our members that are engaged in the program versus those that are not. And we've actually had inpatients admissions per 1,000 is more than 40% lower for the members that are part of this program versus those who are not. So we've seen a lot of positive results and and we're going to keep pushing forward. So just to clarify it um, and to, to wrap up, those are patients who participate in the Enhanced Community Care Program or ECCM, correct? That's correct. So there's about... Um, yeah, there's about uh, 2,300 patients that are sort of in this category. So out of the 1,500 that are engaged, that are actually part of this initiative, they've seen the lower cost and the reduction in, in readmissions versus those who are not. Correct. Well, that is that is great to hear. And we've sort of buried one of the headlines in the very last minute of the podcast. But um, <laughs> I want to thank you for, for sharing those results and, and the work you're doing. Our, our guest again today has been Mark Valenti from Highmark Health. He's the manager of training, education, and workflow integration for the Enhanced Community Care Management Program. Mark, thank you so much for taking time and being a guest today. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much, Mark. It, it, the pleasure is mine. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you on this. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.